Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the worst Easter Sunday worship service I've ever experienced. It happened many years ago, and I'll get to that story in just a minute, and I'll use it as a way of explaining why, from time to time, I'm tempted to hold up a John 3, verse 17 sign. Uh, Let me start with a quick question, then uh, kind of a quick news of the day, one of a segment, something I don't normally do. My quick question is this. If you were on a website like Facebook and had liked or friended the Bible itself as as a publication or as a Facebook fan page, what verse of the Bible are you more likely to see posted or discussed or held up in public than any other verse? As if, in some ways, for some people, it's the only verse of the Bible that anyone needs to know. Now, if you don't have the answer to this question very quickly into your head, as a Christian, shame on you, because you should have a better understanding of the image that you're portraying to the world than that. And if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you're being observant enough, because the obvious answer is John three sixteen. We see it in sports venues. We see it at concerts. It's uh, the kind of thing that, that you know, somebody's likely to hand out to you as a Bible tract, more likely than anything else. And on Facebook, just watching the Bible as a page, as a Facebook fan page go by, I see John three sixteen. I want to say 10 times, 12, 20 times more often than any other verse. And there's nothing inherently wrong with the verse, except that it's one idea inside a paragraph that is packed with other ideas. Um, It can be, in other words, even though fairly well self-contained from the perspective of biblical verses, it can still be an out-of-context Bible experience. The John 3.16, of course, is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I'm wondering if by the time I kind of get through this particular inappropriate conversation, you'll understand why I think that there needs to be a better perspective than just that. that that's a good perspective for my, uh, my attitude as a Christian, but it's not the only perspective. It's not even the only idea that Jesus is sharing during that conversation recorded in John chapter 3. And is there a danger if we get this wrong? I think there absolutely is a danger if we don't communicate in a little bit more broad way, in a more full understanding. And I want to begin there with uh, some of the news of the day, because those of you who don't necessarily kind of watch Christian news may have already heard that there's a hubbub going on out there, that the religious right in America right now is very unhappy with Christian author Rob Bell. Now, I'm familiar with Rob Bell kind of tangentially. Uh, He comes up from time to time in conversation and Sunday school classes. I've seen some of the videos that he has produced uh, on the video side of his production company, and I found them to be very good. I actually have in my possession a book called uh, Jesus Wants to Save Christians by Rob Bell and Dave Golden, a manifesto for the church in exile. Uh, Shame. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it yet. I've got it in my hand right now. It's not even a couple hundred pages long, and it's just one of those things in the stack of books I need to read. So I'm familiar with Rob Bell, but not familiar enough to quote chapter and verse on him. However, his latest publication is out and raises questions about heaven and hell, and specifically tries to be an answer or even a backlash, if you want to look at it from that perspective, to the idea that you sometimes hear in churches 
the the message that you know uh, a very limited number of people are getting to heaven it's a very cult like approach to say that that number is 144,000 whenever i hear people throw that number around i know that they're misreading the book of revelations that they don't understand what um Hebrew scriptures mean by numbers like 12 and 1,000 and can't do the math to come up with 12 times 12 times 1,000 being a very, very large number. Not the mathematical end result of 144,000, but essentially saying that all of God's people from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 12 tribes times 1,000 times all that God owns and 12 apostles times 1,000 times all that God owns combined together that it's a, a huge number. And even in the book of Revelations, when the writer John makes the description, he at first refers to this 12 times 12 idea, times a thousand, and then turns around and refers to the same group of people as being a multitude beyond his ability to ever count. Now, um, it would take a long time to count to 144,000, but it's something that a human being is very capable of pulling off. So to go from there to a, a near infinite number gives you the impression that sometimes Christians do a bad job of convey, conveying how limited it, salvation is. Salvation is as big as Jesus wants it to be. It's kind of the way I would answer that question. And in some ways, that's the way Rob Bell answers the question in his book. I'm going to take the liberty of reading just a little bit of the first part of his book to give a sense, this new book he's written, to give a sense of what it is he's talking about in the book Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and more, um, because he's raising questions that I think the world is raising that maybe the church hasn't done such a good job of answering. Here's Rob Bell's words. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church. I had been giving a series of teachings on peacemaking, and we invited artists to display their paintings, poems, and sculptures that reflected their understanding of what it means to be a peacemaker. One woman included in her work a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, which a number of people found quite compelling. But not everyone. Someone attached a piece of paper to it. On the piece of paper was written, reality check, he's in hell. Really? Gandhi's in hell. He is? We have confirmation of this? Somebody knows this? Without a doubt? And that somebody has decided to take on the responsibility of letting the rest of us know. Of the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place and every other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this, or even allow this, and still claim to be a loving God? These are just some of the questions raised by Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. And you can understand, perhaps on some levels, where the backlash would uh, you know, instinctually come from. Why, you know, Christians don't tend to like hearing other Christians raise questions about Christianity. So you got that knee-jerk response. But there is a legitimate complaint against Rob Bell's approach and the current status of his theology. And I will kind of, you know, as you might expect from me, play both sides here. I think that Rob Bell's raising a very good point, that Christians do not have the authority to say that because someone didn't say a certain prayer in a certain sequence using certain words, they can't get to heaven and I know it. I think Jesus has a lot more authority here than the Christian church today, especially the religious right in America today, give to him. And I've raised that complaint before, so I won't go over the details of it again. But a simple misinterpretation of John 14, verse 6 is in play there, because what happens, I think, in the minds of politically active Christians is that Jesus has somehow given them the right to say who gets in and who doesn't, when it had no point did he ever do that. He did make the claim that he would decide that he is the answer 
to the question, but he did not um, give us any rules that he has to obey in terms of what books have to be read or what prayers have to be said. So that's the fundamental problem that Rob Bell is addressing. The question is, do we know who's in heaven and who's not? And the answer is, no, we don't. So every time a Christian presumes to say that we do, that Christian is committing, if not a heresy, they're at least stepping pretty well beyond the uh, amount of rope that Jesus gave us to work with. On the other hand, Rob Bell appears in the pages of his book to question the very existence of hell itself. And I have a problem with that. Because again, just like we can't with any authority as uh, perhaps the right wing of Christianity, suggest that we know exactly who Jesus has welcomed into the fold and who he hasn't and what his criteria has to be. From the left wing of Christianity, I think it's a completely inappropriate mistake to say that, well, because I've got this standard of fairness, this very human standard of fairness, I get to decide whether there's a hell or not, and I'm going to make a reason-based, logical decision that there isn't. As a Christian, you're going to run into one major problem. No person throughout the entire pages of the Bible, Old Testament and New, speaks more often and more definitively about hell, about the fact that there is one and what it means, and the wisdom of trying to avoid putting yourself in an inevitable position where you're choosing between love and hell and you pick hell, um, is Jesus. So to be a Christian means that you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and there's a, a long litany of things that are packed into that idea. But if you believe in Jesus, uh, not believing in hell seems to, be, uh, seems to me to not be an option. I was doing research for another project, and I came across the name Carlton D. Pearson, who in the American Midwest, I believe Tulsa, Oklahoma, also ran into the same kind of problem, watching the uh, innocent slaughter of uh, Rwandans during the bloody sort of civil war going on in that country, and kind of trying to make peace with the bloodshed that he saw and his knowledge that um, it wasn't the kind of thing that the United Nations was going to fix. It wasn't the kind of thing that the United States was going to intervene on. And how could he make his peace with his very Christian reaction to the slaughter that he was seeing? The overwhelming sorrow, uh, the desire to intervene in some way, and, and the powerlessness of knowing he wouldn't be able to. And his first thought was, well, they're Muslims, so you know, they're, suffering, they're suffering at the fa hands of God's wrath. But then he took that to the next extreme of saying, wow, as soon as they're dead because they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. And then from there saying, how could hell be any worse than what I'm just seeing? And then somehow using, his again, a logic and a reasoning approach to say, Maybe there is no hell because I'm, I'm seeing it right now. Maybe what I'm seeing is hell and there's no need for another hell. That sort of concept. And what all this leaves out is the mercy of God. It leaves out the question of what it was Jesus was trying to accomplish. And what he was trying to accomplish was to make a way for God's mercy to overcome the list of rules and the legalisms. So you have one set of legalisms that says, no, 144,000 people are going to be saved and everyone else is doomed. But you've got this other sort of legalism that's creeping in here that says, hey, I've got this loophole. I've got this little set of rules. I've got this exception that says that there can't be a hell. Therefore, because I as a human have decided that there's no such thing and I haven't bothered to offer any proof, I have no means by which of gathering any evidence. The only person as a Christian in the history of the world who can actually say from any sort of eyewitness account whether there is such a thing as hell is Jesus Christ. And he said there was one. And it strikes me as odd that somebody like Rob Bell would discount that testimony as being really the only testimony that has any sort of credibility from a factual perspective, if you're a Christian. 
Now, if you're not a Christian, then you've got a different problem. You can deal with the fact that, well, maybe Jesus is fictional and therefore everything he says is fictional. But then wouldn't you already be accepting the idea that heaven and hell are fictional too? And therefore, this isn't an argument that you need to get riled up about. Anyone who's getting riled up about this particular conversation has to answer for something, has to answer for whatever it is in their in their conscience or in their collective unconscious or in their heart that is telling them they need to be involved here, that this matters to them. Because why in the world would you assume that a story you think is fictional, with a central character you think is fictional, with a set of times and places that you think are fictional, why would it matter to you whether someone else believes them? It's an interesting question, and one that I expect to be exploring in my personal life here between Easter and Pentecost a little bit, trying to deal with the question of why do people get so riled up about what Jesus said if they don't believe he ever existed? Or, in the case of Rob Bell, if you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, if you believe that he's God incarnate, if you think that he is offering an infallible truth to the world, why don't his teachings about hell count for you? So we can consider that kind of a news of the day question. I want to stick with John's gospel a little bit. I'm going to share some words of scripture, and then I want to jump into two stories from my past to try to explain why, to me, we need to have a John 3.17 sign, or at least a John 3.16 and 3.17 sign. And I would say probably John chapter 3 from verses 14 all the way to 17. And I want to start by giving some context that's really crucial from the Old Testament. You know, Jesus, and especially when you get even to his followers like John in the book of Revelations, constantly quoting Hebrew scripture. So I've communicated perhaps on many times here, and probably there'll be an occasion in the future where I need to do it again even more clearly. Uh, the idea that uh, I'm a Christian, I'm following Christ, and I believe that Christ fulfilled all Old Testament laws. There are no Hebrew rules that I feel that I have to obey. I'm not a Sabbatarian. I don't get upset about um, worshiping on Saturday versus worshiping on Sunday. I don't have a whole, lot of, a whole set of dietary restrictions. Ironically, I'm not a big fan of shellfish, so I'm okay there either way, right? But you know, from, from the perspective of a whole big set of rules, I believe Jesus fulfilled all of those laws, and that none of those laws apply to me from the perspective of earning salvation, that whole works-based approach. But when Jesus tells us to love him and to love others, um, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're going to be following a lot of those laws anyway. No, to me, the value in Hebrew scriptures, the, the true meaning of the Old Testament, comes from the storytelling and how Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience and later his apostles speaking to a Jewish audience primarily were able to use the stories that are provided in the Old Testament, as we call it, to give a context for what it was they were trying to say, to help people bridge the gap between what it means to turn your eyes upon Jesus from an Old Testament perspective. So let me begin there with a passage from the book of Numbers in chapter 21. Using more of a modern English translation, the Israelites left Mount Hor, but on the way the people lost patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this desert where there is no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Now pray to the Lord and take these snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told Moses to make a metal snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at it and be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who had been bitten would look at the bronze snake 
and be healed. From an Old Testament perspective, to me, it's fascinating that God did not do exactly what the people had asked of him. He did not make the snakes go away. Instead, the consequences of, of their behavior were there. The consequences of not fully appreciating the difference between being removed from slavery in Egypt and yet not yet having found their way to the promised land, those consequences weren't removed. But a different answer was provided. A different hope was given. And it is in that context that when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 3 and trying to explain um, what he's doing to Nicodemus, uh, a, a member of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, he words it this way. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. John three seventeen says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It answers the question, why, that is raised in John 3.16, and grammatically, not if you look from the perspective of the way the Bible is punctuated, but if you look from the way the Bible uses introductory clauses and prepositional phrases, this is all one idea. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so that whoever believes, for God so loved, and then for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. These are all linked in prepositional phrases as one single thought, as one single paragraph, if you will. They're either from a verse perspective, three or four sentences you know, that are grouped together, or one running, run-on sentence made of fragments where the prepositional phrases give you the sense that it's a continuation of the idea before. And that's what I'd like to emphasize today. To me, the Easter message is not just that God loved the world and that Jesus is the sign of that and that Jesus is the way to eternal life, but also that Jesus did not come into this world specifically to declare who was, who was out and who was in. Jesus came to the world as a means of providing salvation, not as a means of providing judgment. This is not to say that he doesn't have the power to judge. He does. But I think that the focus on John 3.16 by itself and the way we almost never hear anybody connect it to John 3.17 tells us something we need to hear. I first encountered this when I was on a campus at university in the American Midwest, the heart of the heart of the country. And while I was a student, a freshman, large university, 25,000 students. And as a freshman, the only real connection I had was that my older sister was a junior. So I had an older sister on campus. But um, for the most part, I was making new friends and making new connections and maybe only had one regular contact, one or two regular contacts with people from high school. But those were kind of casual. Um, I didn't really – I wasn't one of those students who went to college with my best friend. My sophomore year, a year later, I did room with somebody that I'd known for a long time. And as most people probably know from experience, rooming with a friend you've known for a long time isn't necessarily a smooth way. <laughs> Sometimes the assumptions based on an existing friendship create stress 
um, and inconsiderations that you would not make the mistake of doing if you were rooming with a stranger. And so you learn those lessons. But one of the things I thought, well, I got to figure out how to join some extracurricular clubs. I mean, I'm not part of the athletic programs of the university. Um, I could have worked in the student newspaper as early as that first year, and I only dabbled a bit there. But looking for something that wasn't related directly to my studies and wasn't related directly to the people that I roomed with, because the people that I lived with that first year was kind of an animal house. I've talked about that already on April Fool's Day. There are reasons to sort of keep some of that behavior at kind of an arm's distance. And one of the groups that approached me was the Campus Crusade for Christ. Now, uh, I think this organization is affiliated with Josh McDowell. I don't have any problem with Josh McDowell and his theology. I don't probably have any problem with the group Campus Crusades for Christ. It might be on another campus in another time a really good ministry. But on that particular campus at that particular time, and where I was in my walk, because I'm already a Christian, I'm a Christian looking for a Christian group. Boy, I found them to be extremely wanting. That their message was, you will burn in hell if you don't join this club, <laughs> essentially. Now, I didn't word it quite that way. They were, they were far more close to a real theology than that. But they had a lot more to say about hell than heaven. And to be fair, as I've just quoted, Jesus probably has as much to say about hell as he does heaven as well. But I'm going to grant him a little bit of leeway there. He is, after all, Jesus. That the message of hope and salvation was drowned out by the message of condemnation and judgment. There was a big list of rules that this particular branch of that organization had. Following those rules was more important than loving God, to put it as simply as you can. And it took me a little while. I mean, I'm a freshman in college. I'm not even, I'm not even 18 years old or barely 18 years old. I'm, I'm trying to find out in my head, what is it about this that's putting me off? Now, some of it was, you know, their, their condemnation of, of all music that wasn't contemporary Christian. And the status of contemporary Christian music at that time and place was, uh, was nowhere near as good as it is today. Somebody could come to me today and make an argument and say, hey, for you know, three solid weeks, I want you to listen to nothing but contemporary Christian music. I'll be just fine. That won't be a problem at all. But back then, I don't think that there were three solid weeks of music without repeating you know, a very limited number of albums over and over again that would have even been bearable. It would have been almost torture. The quality wasn't there, either in the musicianship or, frankly, in the message. So some of it was that. I was off-put by their approach to popular culture. But the other thing was that I was reading through their, their tracks. So those were more than just tracks. These were little booklets where they had taken the gospel messages they saw it and condensed it into something that someone who had never read the Bible or maybe would never read the Bible could comprehend. And I noticed when they were quoting Scripture that every single opportunity they had to quote the Gospels, they quoted the Gospel of John. And I called them on it. I basically said, I'm a little bit curious as to why you don't have room in your materials, whether the materials that you're provided by the National Organization of Campus Crusades for Christ or the materials you've produced yourself, why you don't have much room in those materials for Matthew and Mark and Luke. It bothers me because if you want to reach a young audience with a revolutionary idea of how to stand up and make a change, Mark's gospel probably does that better than the others. If you want to reach people who are not Christian at all and have no Christian background, have no Jewish background either, Luke's gospel might be the way to go. It tells the whole story. It includes the, uh, the birth account of Jesus in a way that John's gospel doesn't. And it was written to reach you know, non-Jewish people. You don't have to have all that uh, Old Testament background to get a lot out of Luke's gospel. And for me, I've got a bias. If you look at my past different drummers, you know I've got a bias. I'm wondering what happened to Matthew's gospel. 
why in the world would a Christian organization trying to reach other Christians to gather together on a campus environment, strengthen themselves and, and lead in evangelism, why would, the sermon, why would you not have room for the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount only appears in Matthew's Gospel. Why would you have a problem with the Great Commission where Jesus sends us out to share his word and make disciples? It just seemed odd to me that it would have been one thing if they dabbled in all four Gospels and in the letters of Paul and just had a you know more John than anything else. But I'm telling you, it was 95% the Gospel of John and nothing else. And the focus and the quotes from the Gospel of John were, of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but also John 14. And the emphasis there was, of course, that no one comes to the Father but by me. It was almost as if that group had lost sight of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're only interested in Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father but by me. To connect this back to Rob Bell for a minute, was Rob Bell wrong in suggesting that there's at least a possibility that Gandhi is in heaven? I don't think so. If Gandhi is in heaven, it's because Jesus wants him there. That's a Christian perspective. That is a traditional, orthodox, conservative Christian perspective. And yet, I think that the religious right in America might not agree with my traditional, conservative, careful, studious view. They don't agree with C.S. Lewis either, if that's their point of view. So, I essentially rejected Campus Crusades for Christ and had to go through the college experience without that campus Christians group really there to to support me and for me to support them because we couldn't see eye to eye on who Jesus was. And it wasn't because I had a, a liberal worldview and a problem with Christ as he's presented in the Bible. It's because they did. Let me kind of put that into some terms that will help us as I share my Easter story here in a minute. Because the notion we have of liberal versus conservative, it tends to be political. And when you look at that from the perspective of religion, it suddenly becomes very naive because the political perspective is you've got a certain set of points of view on the political spectrum. And therefore, Christianity is over here on the right and um, aberrant Christian views are over there on the left. And that's not true. To me, a conservative Christian approach says there's four Gospels. All of them are valid. All of them have something to say. If at any point in time you're interpreting what John's gospel says about Jesus in a way that contradicts the other three, you're wrong. You're reading John's gospel improperly, that these were all disciples of Christ or books written from the perspective of those disciples of Christ, and that scriptural synergy is a crucial Christian concept. So anyone, whether they come to it from a very liberal leftist perspective or anyone who comes to it from a very politically conservative perspective, radical right perspective. Anyone who comes along and says the Jesus presented in the, in the gospel of John is right and all the rest are wrong is not being conservative. It doesn't matter how politically conservative their other viewpoints might be. The very act of pitting gospel against gospel, scripture against scripture is an inherently liberal idea. The conservative idea is to say these four gospels told from four different accounts are critical in our understanding of the character of Christ, that each one portrays Christ in a different relationship with a different author and therefore round out our vision of who he truly is. So anyone who comes in, even with just a, I'm all about John 3.16 and the rest of the Bible is irrelevant, is inherently liberal. Those very words are liberal in the sense that they are not willing to bow their knee and respect the authority of the text itself. 
So here I am as somebody that a lot of my friends probably consider to be politically liberal. I don't buy that. I think I'm a radical moderate, but I'm more liberal than they are. And yet at the same time, being more politically liberal than they are, here I am bowing my head to the authority of scriptural synergy in a way that the Campus Crusades for Christ in the American Midwest, for example, completely failed. Nowhere do I see the John 3.17 or the lack of understanding or respect for the one idea that Jesus is communicating there, that turning your eyes upon Jesus and looking full in his wonderful face is a critical Christian concept that ties all the way back to the Old Testament and the book of Numbers and Moses fashioning a bronze snake on a, on a pole and putting it in the air for people to turn their eyes to what God has said will bring salvation. That that entire concept is really important, and the personhood of Jesus is just a part of it. Nowhere have I heard that missed so badly as on an Easter Sunday service, just a couple of years after this uh, encounter with the Campus Crusades for Christ. I'm thankful to say that it didn't chase me completely out of the church, because it could have. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS Patient Care and Research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. So I guess my theme is this. It's the old hymn by Helen H. Lemmel, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The scripture reference you tend to see for this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But it works just as well for John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, or really, truthfully, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This particular Easter Sunday, while I was in college, it was, that, it was a great moment in, in my life. It must have been a terribly painful moment for my parents and for my, uh, my wife's parents, because I went to church on this Sunday with my fiancé, and my fiancé was joined by her family. It was her family's church. So I'm there with her, her younger brother, her older brother, mom and dad, and her older brother had brought with the, him a friend from college, a friend from, I want to say from India, but I think I'm going to hedge a little and say he was from the Indian subcontinent because there's a chance he was from Sri Lanka, which is an island off the coast. So from somewhere in the Indian subcontinent, a friend of his who was not Christian, who was also not Hindu, he was Zoroastrian. We were also perhaps, if I'm remembering, we were joined in church by members of my family as well. In my head, my younger sister and older sister were there. I know that they were there with us for lunch after church because we went to lunch together and we went to a movie, but I'm not sure that they were there with us for the worship service. I know that I was there with my fiance's family. And the reason I mentioned this being tough is, you imagine being you know, the breadwinner of the family, trying to do everything you can to support your kids' uh, education all the way through college. So you're not necessarily paying your kids' way through college, but you're, you're doing most of it. You're doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And this was a moment when my brother was in graduate school, my sister was perhaps a senior in college or you know, about to graduate, but still in college. There I am in college as well. My wife's older brother kind of the same age as my, my older brother, but still in, still in college. I think the same university we were at, whether he's pursuing 
master's degree work at the time is likely, I think. And um, both of us having one young, younger sibling, she with a younger brother, me with a younger sister, both of them you know, poised to graduate high school and poised to join this huge expense of higher education. So you have all this higher education money being spent. And the good thing was a lot of us were at the same university. So we've got these connections. We're doing stuff together. We don't, you know, we weren't the kind of close knit, you know, set of families that we met every week, you know, for Sunday lunch or something, but we're doing things together. And on this occasion, I was really excited because I had studied uh, uh, religious studies, you know, pursuing a minor degree in religious studies and had not really heard a lot about Zoroastrianism. It probably didn't even get more than a paragraph in the introduction to religious studies that I was taking. And if I'd gotten to the point of taking the entire coursework on the religions of the Indian subcontinent, that coursework hadn't led to Zoroastrianism yet. So here I am speaking with somebody who's literally a man on the street who is following this other faith from a far off land. And he has come to spend this holiday, this American holiday with us because we didn't go to school in the same city that we, our parents lived in. It was an hour, an hour and a half, maybe a little less drive from university to home. So the holiday weekend, the campus kind of shuts down a little bit, and he was coming with us. It was great. And the thought in my head was, well, if I get a chance, I want to talk to this guy about Zoroastrianism. This is a great opportunity. This could be really cool. That didn't happen. And one of the reasons it didn't happen was how wrong I was about how good an idea it was for this person to come to Easter Sunday service. I had a boss once who referred to her Christianity as being the CEO plan. CEO in this case is an intentional pun. The acronym for chief executive officer, the CEO of an organization. But for her, the CEO plan as a Christian meant that she went to church on Christmas, Easter, and one other occasion. Christmas, Easter, and usually Mother's Day. Being a Christian was something you needed to see to be seen doing. Because being viewed as a Christian, being viewed as somebody who went to church, was good if you wanted to advance up the corporate ladder. Uh, to be a president of the United States, being a Protestant Christian is a really good idea. Uh, at no point does, do American conservatives really get to the point of saying, are you genuinely Christian? It's enough to be on the CEO plan. And part of the reason that Easter is such a big Sunday is that almost everybody comes. It's the one time that people who only come to church once a year are likely to go to church. The reason that it beats Christmas, in my mind, is partly weather-related. Christmas coming deep in the heart of the winter, a little less convenient to get out and about. And also, a lot of people at Christmas time are taking more than just a few days off, a whole week off, more than a week off, traveling somewhere. So you, ha you lose a lot of people who might be part of your community of faith because they're out of town. But Easter doesn't necessarily have spring break attached to it. Holy Week is only a week off if you're perhaps part of a Catholic educational system. So for a lot of people, Easter is literally a weekend. Um, they may or may not get Good Friday off. They're probably going back to work on Monday. So most people are in town. And it's, the again, the one Sunday on the CEO plan where you're going to see almost everybody in church. So I was thinking to myself, what a great opportunity. Because first off, he's going to see a full church. That's good. Second off, you could pretty much guarantee that the choir is going to be trying to sing their very best, that the lay reader is going to be you know, working on this scripture reading and, and, and practicing almost, if you will, to try to do his very best because you have to overcome the stage fright of, of a packed full house, for one thing. And for another thing, it's a really important day in the Christian calendar. So I really expected the worship service to be as good as it's going to get. And I really expected the message to do something that you know, far too often doesn't happen in churches today. I had a friend that I'd met at a men's retreat who came to visit my church several months later, 
And you know, while we're talking and getting ready for worship, one of the things he told me was that he was intentionally trying to visit as many churches of as many friends that he'd met along the way as he could, just because he felt called to do it. And in the process of doing that, one of the things that he had noticed was that it was really unusual, uh, at least nowadays, unusual to hear the story of Christ's birth, death, resurrection, be part of the sermon. That too often the sermon becomes about a much more narrow focus, a particular set of scriptures, something in the letters of Paul, something referring to the Old Testament, and that at no point does the actual good news, who Jesus is, what he did, why it mattered, it wasn't getting shared. But on Easter Sunday, you can be pretty sure that you're going to get a story about the resurrection of Christ. If it's told really well, it's probably going to be a story that goes from the crucifixion through the resurrection, maybe even from the Last Supper and the Eucharist to the resurrection. But it's hard to imagine an Easter Sunday service that doesn't cover this basics of who is Jesus, what did he do, what's it about, what does it mean, Easter Sunday, right? So I went to this worship service with my wife's family and her older brother's friend from India and thought, wow, this is going to be pretty awesome because rather than me just grilling him about what his faith's all about, I'm going to be able to start with him having heard a reasonably good Easter Sunday message and be able to answer his questions too if he doesn't follow any of it. And that was going to be fantastic, right? But I've already told you, this is the worst Easter Sunday service I have ever been to in my entire life. And the experience was actually traumatic enough that it it made me, I think I've only been back to that particular church, the one that was closest to my wife's home when she was in high school, a couple of times since then. We did not get married in her church. You would think typically you would. Typically you have a couple, they live in the same city, uh, worship in the same denomination, and you have two churches that are both nice. Which one do you get married in? If there's no edge, if one's not bigger than the other or smaller, if one hasn't you know, been redecorated recently, if there's nothing else to it, you're almost always going to get married in the wife's church. That tends to be the tradition in, in America, or at least in Protestant America. But in this case, now we both agreed that there was no way that pastor was going to marry us. And if the only way we could get married in her church was for him, him to be a part of it, then we weren't going to get married in her church. And I can't convey probably in any stronger way how passionately I feel about this, except to say we didn't get married in her church over the objections of her parents, over some very strong, strong emotional reactions from her mother. We did not get married in her church because I did not want to get married by somebody who I believe did not understand the gospel. So to jump right to the point, I open up the bulletin that morning, look to see kind of, well, what hymns are we singing? What is the precise scripture passage we're going to be reading? Is it John chapter 20? Is it a combination of some of the other gospels? What's it going to be? And in the process of looking at all that, I saw that his message was called, All Non-Christians Are Going to Hell. Okay, I'm taking a little poetic license there. I'm not 100% sure that was the title that he printed in the bulletin, but make no mistake about it. That was the message that he gave. It was 15 or 20 minutes of actual, prejudicial, violent hatred toward anybody who wasn't already part of the church. And here we had brought somebody who was not even part of our religion, who was not even part of our culture, to what here? Hatred and anger and vitriol and condemnation directed toward him for no other reason than no one had bothered to share the gospel with him before, that he had no hope, that at some point a line had been drawn in time and we were in a new end times paradigm and everything before that was over and now there was no hope. This was the message this person was giving on what is supposed to be the most hopeful and eternal life affirming day in the entire Christian calendar. 
all non-Christians are going to hell. And somehow he got there, in part, from John 3.16. Now, if you're like me, you're doing the math, and it's not adding up. How does God so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? Twist so easily into whoever does not believe in him is doomed to perish and suffer eternal torment as if we as humans have some say in the matter. As if you didn't say this before you were 13 years old, so you're not confirmed and therefore you're not saved. Or whatever the rest of this guy's message was. To be honest, I hung in there and did the best I can to pay attention to him and to see if there was any any good news in his gospel message for Easter Sunday. And I wasn't hearing it. And perhaps I was a little bit distracted. I was distracted by two things, though. First, I was distracted by my concern for our guest. Something that should have been in his mind, too. You've got an Easter Sunday where you either have a lot of visitors and a lot of guests, no doubt about it, but you also have people who are part of your parish who are only in your church that one day. It is your one chance to treat them as guests, even if they might be members of your church. They're strangers to you. You've got to treat them as guests, and he failed completely. And the other problem that I had was the whole time he's giving his message, I am hearing the words of John's gospel. The gospel certified, blessed, and approved by the Campus Crusades for Christ at the expense of all other gospel messages. The one true message. You know, a sentence linked by prepositional phrase as a subordinate to the previous sentence of John 3.16. I'm hearing John 3.17 in my head saying, For Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to be its Savior. If you've gone to worship services the last couple of weeks for Palm Sunday, this week for Easter Sunday, or even in the future, and you're not hearing that Jesus came to save the world, turn around and walk out. You don't have enough time in this life to waste in a church that doesn't know who Jesus Christ was. So here's my beef, and the reason why I think it's got to be such an important part for me of these inappropriate conversations, because I come to these as a Christian. But are we Christians doing something wrong by dressing up in white, by pretending to be better than we really are, by putting on a holier-than-thou show, by presuming to judge a world that Jesus came to save first and foremost? Should we, instead of dressing up in white and talking about how great we are, maybe we should be dressing up in black? I mentioned last week that seemingly for three consecutive weeks and totally unplanned, I'm having different drummers who do an outstanding job of expressing secular visions of divinity, that in music careers that are unmistakably secular, these people express a great deal of their own personal faith, and perhaps even a faith that at times in their careers they didn't know they had. In the case of Johnny Cash, though, I believe that it's pretty clear that the faith he was trying to communicate was, by and large, intentional. Sometimes I think we think of Johnny Cash as being somebody who had country albums and patriotic albums and religious albums, that he had songs to use his own marketing campaign, songs about love and songs about murder and songs about God. But he also mixed them up. And to me, no example of that is better than his song, The Man in Black, since I intentionally referred to it both last week and in the intro here. Seems only right that I quote the lyrics for anybody who has had the misfortune of never hearing Johnny Cash's own words to his own song. The Man in Black. 
Well, you wonder why I always dress in black, why you never see bright colors on my back, and why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear the black for the poor and beaten down, living on the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. I wear the black for those who've never read or listen to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity. Why you think he's talking straight to you and me? Well, we're doing mighty fine, I do suppose, and our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes. But just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back, up front, there ought to be a man in black. I wear it for the sick and lonely old, for the reckless ones whose bad trip left them cold. I wear the black in mourning for the lives that could have been. Each week we lose a hundred fine young men. I wear it for the thousands who have died, believing that the Lord was on their side. I wear it for a hundred thousand who have died, believing that we were all on their side. Well, there's things that never will be right, I know, and things that need changing everywhere you go. But till we start to make a move to make a few things right, you'll never see me wear a suit of white. Oh, I'd love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay. But I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back. Till things are brighter, I'm the man in black. The man in black is also our different drummer, Johnny Cash. And as you might imagine, there is simply too much in Johnny Cash to discuss in a single different drummer segment. He is undoubtedly one of the superstars of country music. He also did as much as anyone, including in my mind Elvis, to bring gospel music into the popular culture at a time when his popularity within his own genre, whether that be country or rock and roll, had already been established. But he also has willingly or unwillingly, wittingly or unwittingly, found a way to find the gospel message within his own songs. So here... And the song, The Man in Black, is clearly very intentional. The verse that I played for you, so you could hear it in his own words, unmistakably a gospel message. And yet somehow we give Johnny Cash a pass that I don't know that we would give most other popular musicians. If some other popular singer today dropped those particular lyrics into their latest song that they expected to be played on the radio station and turned into a hit single, I wonder how we might react. It perhaps says something about us that we need to know that our, co our country is as divided as we think it is, and that we are so obsessed with dividing the secular and the sectarian that to our own peril there's things we're not hearing from either side of the spectrum that we need to hear. It also says a lot about Johnny Cash and the height of his popularity in the early 1970s and uh, during that period of time that he's singing, making direct references to the Vietnam War. So how do I handle the impossibility of doing a different drummer segment on somebody who is so much larger than life I think I'm going to focus it, and I want to focus it on my personal experience with Johnny Cash, and the thing that turned the corner for me from him being um, a musician from my parents' generation to being a musician from mine. I want to talk about his relationship with the American Recordings record label. And I want to start by quoting um, the All Media Guide, www.allmusic.com, because I think they word this incredibly well, about his debut album uh, on American, the 1994 release, just called American Recordings. Johnny Cash was in the unenviable position of being a living legend who was beloved by fans of classic country music without being able to interest anyone in his most recent work, 
when he was signed to Rick Rubin's American Recordings label in 1994. Rubin, best known for his work with edgy rockers and hip-hop acts, opted to produce Cash's first album for American, and as he tried to brainstorm an approach that would introduce Cash to a new audience, he struck upon a brilliant idea. Doing nothing. For American recordings, Rubin simply put up some recording equipment in Cash's Tennessee cabin and recorded him singing a set of songs, accompanied only by his acoustic guitar. That was part of the brilliance. The other part of the brilliance for that first album was that it wasn't exclusively Cash's songs. Some had been previously written by Cash, some may have been relatively new, and others were brought to him by others. So Cash bringing other artists' songs that he's loved into the recording sessions, and Rick Rubin offering some as well. And if you read the list of the artists on that, on that album, the uh, writers, you can really see the influence. Uh, people like Nick Lowe, Chris Christopherson, but also people like Glenn Danzig and uh, Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits, a combination of lots of different writers, including, of course, several written by Johnny Cash. Wikipedia words it this way. Under Rubin's supervision, Cash recorded American recordings in his living room, accompanied only by his Martin Dreadnought guitar, one of the many that Cash played throughout his career. The album features covers by many contemporary artists selected by Rubin and has much critical and commercial success, winning the Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album. And Cash wrote that his reception at the 1994 Glastonbury Festival was one of the highlights of his career. This was the beginning of a decade of music industry accolades and commercial success. Johnny Cash was still producing albums for American recordings and working in this same sort of approach, sometimes with musical accompaniment, sometimes just a man on his guitar. But he was doing this work really up until his death. One of my regrets was that Johnny Cash did come to do what would have been a concert in the city that I lived in, supporting one of these, uh, the first four American recordings albums. And uh, it, he had hit the point where his health had caught up to him and that concert got canceled. And what could have been a concert performance yeah, turned into nothing more than um, to Johnny Cash making a public appearance and kind of waving to fans and signing perhaps a very few autographs. In 1997, uh, Johnny Cash, who was already diabetic, was diagnosed with a form of Parkinson's disease, uh, Scheidrager syndrome. That would ultimately take his life. And ironically, you know, Johnny would die in, in 2003 within four months of his wife's death. And I'm wondering how many have seen this from older couples in particular who've had a long lifetime of marriage together, how quickly the death of one spouse leads to the death of the other spouse. I've even seen it in cases where the first spouse was very ill and the other spouse was perfectly healthy and seeing the surviving spouse's health go from good to terrible in a very short period of time, as if quite literally it was impossible for them to go on living without the other person. Johnny Cash's American recordings resonated most for me because of my notion of secular visions of divinity. Not only do you have religious songs intentionally included and written by Johnny Cash, like Redemption, or uh, the uh, traditional spirituals that he would drop in from time to time, or references to them, or the song Why Me, Lord, by Chris Christopherson. Now, to me, the one that really caught me, grabbed me, asking Rob Bell type of questions, making provocative claims, and having the songwriting caliber that you'd expect from, I don't know, somebody like Tom Waits, actually was a Tom Waits song called Down There by the Train, although I had never heard Waits perform the song before. It would later appear on a Waits uh, box set called Orphans, uh, kind of a B-sides, rarities, demos kind of a, a version, which makes me think that perhaps Down There by the Train was first recorded by Johnny Cash 
for this particular American recording session. And I can't emphasize enough how happy I was to see this particular first album on American records win that uh, Grammy Award for Contemporary Folk. I have a tremendous amount of steam for Tom Waits. He's one of my favorite songwriters. And odd as it is to say, he's also one of my favorite singers. Anybody who's heard Tom Waits before would understand that if you find Johnny Cash's voice just a little too earthy, a little bit too gruff, Johnny Cash's voice is a hundred times more angelic than Tom Waits can be when he wants to be. Um, Tom Waits uh, has definitely an acquired taste. But I want to end this different drummer segment by talking a little bit about the lyrics to that track down there by the train. I won't quote them all because I think that actually the song has more verses than what Johnny Cash recorded, which is ironic considering it's about a five-minute song. But it's interesting to me the kinds of things that are being asked, the questions that are being raised in the song, and the comparison to this you know, hate-filled Easter Sunday service I heard. If I'd stood up in that congregation that particular Sunday from the balcony and interrupted the service itself and asked the pastor straight up, where is Judas Iscariot? You know, is he in hell? Is he in heaven? The, the man who was officiating that horrible Easter service would have no doubt in his mind, definitely in hell. My, my mind, the right answer is, we don't know. Only Jesus knows what his grace will forgive. Even in a case of somebody who betrayed him in such an obvious way, at least during the gospel accounts, uh, betrayed him in such an obvious way. We don't know. And to the extent that we're not sure one way or the other, it's okay to speculate. It's not a bad thing that Rob Bell is raising the kinds of questions early on in his newest book about, you know, the fate of Gandhi or whether we uh, sell God's mercy short in a way that Judaism never really does. You know, Judaism has all those stories of the horrible, horrifying judgment of God, you know, wiping out the entire populations of groups or even all of humanity early on. And yet Judaism never seems to have lost sight of the mercy of God in the way that modern Christianity seems to have done. But uh, here's what uh, Tom Waits and Johnny Cash had to say about it. Just going from memory, there's a place I know where the train goes slow, where the sinner can be washed in the blood of the lamb. There's a river by the trestle out by sinners row out where the willow and the dogwood grow. You can hear the whistle. You can hear the bell from the halls of heaven to the gates of hell. And there's room for the forsaken. If you're there on time, you'll be washed of all your sins and all of your crimes. If you're down there where the train goes slow, there's a golden moon shining up through the mist. And I know your name can be on that list. There's no eye for an eye. There's no tooth for a tooth. I saw Judas Iscariot carrying John Wilkes Booth. He was down there by the train. If you have a diverse audience, as I hope I do, there's two lessons to be taken from John chapter 3, verse 17. One of them is, that we have to be very careful as Christians to make sure that we're conveying the hope that Jesus asked us to convey. If we're not conveying the idea that Jesus came to save the world, then we probably need to shut up. For the non-Christian world, it's so easy to tune out the noise that you hear. Uh, that, you know, From Christianity, you're probably hearing the same four verses over and over again. And there's more to it than that. And my hope is that anytime you see John 3.16, from this point going forward, you'll remember in your head that that's just one verse out of four, that are just one paragraph out of an entire chapter of Jesus literally visiting with somebody who was part of the church, 
but had lost his way and didn't understand what salvation even meant anymore, that it had just become to him and his organization a list of rules to the extent that Jesus had to speak in the way he did just to make, just to make the message clear, just to get through that the term, unless someone is born again of the spirit, isn't some badge you can put on your shirt and say, I'm in the club. I've said the magic words. I believe all the right things. It's much more complex than that. Don't let the church dumb that down for you. Whatever you do, don't let the church dumb down something that is infinitely wise. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, have a different perspective, or have a different experience, perhaps. Maybe you have an even worse Easter Sunday sermon you've been subjected to. I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And the website has comments enabled in the show notes at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.